our study of Hebrews takes us tonight to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. In chapter 8, the main point, I believe, of chapter 8 is that today as Christians we have a greater or a better high priest. I think you could say that the main point of chapter 9 is that for us today as Christians we have a better tabernacle. That being the church, of course. We're going to see in chapter 9 how the Old Testament tabernacle is simply a shadow of that which was to come. Not the real thing, not the real essence, but the shadow of that which was to come. And on the other hand, today, we're able to be a part of the real thing, of the essence. You might say of the substance. And mentioned before, you're going to see the number of times in the book of Hebrews, you see the word true. Today, we're a part of the true tabernacle and the true worshipers. And again, I'll allude back to John 4:24 even and encourage you to study that a little more, particularly study the woman's question. And see how the common interpretation that you've probably heard all your life, see how that fails to answer the woman's question. But anyway, we're looking now at Hebrews 9. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Different words stand out here in just chapter 9 and verse 1. But the first, now the first covenant, or really when he's talking about the covenant, he's talking about everything included in that. But... Really, in chapter 9, he's going to focus on the tabernacle. He says, the first had also ordinances. Some translations will render that regulations. You might read that if you wanted to. Ordinances, regulations, even commandments, requirements, different ways of pretty much saying the same thing, I believe. But the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. There's another word that stands out as worldly. You think about in the Old Testament how much of their system of worship was worldly, not that it was ungodly, not that it was of the world as opposed to being of God, but it was worldly in the sense that it was so physical. Uh, When you talk about the construction of the tabernacle itself, they were given very specific instructions as to the physical construction of this tabernacle. Then you read about the, the dress of the priest, for example, and how that was stipulated as, as to how he was to be dressed, what he would wear during his service in the tabernacle. And then all of the animal sacrifices as opposed to the spiritual sacrifice that Christ has offered. Very worldly in the sense that it's very, you might say, earthly or very physical. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, and the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Let's stop for now and go back to verse 2. And now in verse 2, in the next several verses, he's going to talk about the better tabernacle. And he's going to talk about the physical furnishings of the tabernacle. And as you look at the physical furnishings of the tabernacle, I can tell you what I think they represent. But mind you, when I tell you what I think they represent, there are different opinions as to what some of these things represent. Especially there are a myriad of opinions as to what is represented by the veil which to me is the simplest of all to understand, but yet they make a lot of difference. There are, there are a lot of different opinions as to what 
this represents. So when you're trying to look at this, when you're trying to study this section of Scripture, but not only this section of Scripture, when you're trying to study anything anywhere in the Bible, people talk about how to study the Bible or what are some of the tools I can have to study the Bible. I really do believe the very first thing you need to have to study the Bible and the more, most important thing you need to study the Bible is simply a willingness to think for yourself. Uh, and so that when you learn to think for yourself, that means the things you believe, hopefully, will be the result of your own study and not just the result of something that you've heard all your life. You know, sometimes we can hear things all our life. And when you go back to, for yourself and really read that text like you've never read it before, you might find out, you know what, it doesn't say what I've always heard it said. And so you need to have an open mind and a willingness to think for yourself. It's all right to disagree with people. That doesn't mean when we study the Bible, we're always going to try to come up with a new idea and always try to disagree with what we've heard. We're not going to try to do it for the sake of disagreement. But on the other hand, don't be afraid to think for yourself and to disagree with some of what you heard in the past. And I, I, I think that's good. And I think you'll be surprised if you do that, how much you'll be learning actually along the way. But he tells us in verse 2, there was a tabernacle made, the first tabernacle now, and we're in, or in this tabernacle, is the candlestick, and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now, when he called, says, which is called the sanctuary, he's simply made, talking about this first section of the tabernacle. And remember, if you look at a diagram of this, and there's kind of different diagrams made, but they pretty much, pretty much agree with one another, you first go into an, an outer wall, which... And when you come into this, enter the gate and come into this area, you're really into what's considered the outer court, really typical of the world. And in this outer court, you find, among other things, the altar of sacrifice there, and you find the laver or the washing, the laver where they would wash before they entered into the church. You see how this is all symbolic. And when you study, types and antitypes are a great study. And really, if you look at some of the things people believe about the church today, in order to make that true, you've got to go back and rearrange the tabernacle. You've got to go back and rearrange furniture. For example, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but for example, the laver in which they were washed before they entered in the tabernacle was outside. You had to be washed, and then you entered in the tabernacle, which was typical of the church. If you go into the church, like people say today, and then you're going to be baptized afterward... Although most don't really say that. Most say you're saved first, but you're baptized to be added to the church or to join the church. Baptism is necessary. To do some of those things, you're going to have to put the laver of washing inside the tabernacle instead of outside. You've got to go back and rearrange the old tabernacle. So he's telling us in verse 2, there was a tabernacle made. And the sanctuary, he says in verse 2, which is called the sanctuary, is really when you would leave this outer court, now you walk into the tabernacle proper. And the tabernacle actually has two sections in it. It's got uh, the holy place, and it has the most holy place, or some translations will say the holiest of holies. And these two people, uh, these two people, these two sections rather, are separated by a veil. And when you go in the first, notice this first section is a sanctuary. The sanctuary can be defined in different ways, but think of it maybe as a refuge and a place of safety, but it's a sanctuary now that it's set apart from the world as well. This building that we meet in today is not the sanctuary. Some, 
Sometimes you go places and they say, well, we're all going to be seated in the sanctuary or something. There's, the building is not a sanctuary today. Uh, no physical building today is a sanctuary. But this, this first section of the tabernacle is described as a sanctuary. And in this sanctuary, you would see the candlestick and the table in which the showbed was on. Now, the candlestick uh, can represent different things, I suppose. At least people put forth different ideals as to what the candlestick represented. To me, the most obvious representation here of the candlestick is simply that it's the Word of God. How many times do we read in the Bible, for example, in Psalm 119.05, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, now, that's in Psalm 119.105, but certainly there are a number of verses in the Bible that talk about God's Word and how we use it today, and it's a guide for us today, but it's a light for us today, and the candlestick, and I think that's representation of uh, God's Word. If you're writing notes or anything, if you wanted to, you could write down along with that, Zechariah 4, verses 1 through 6. But you see the candlestick. Now, it's also interesting about the candlestick. Some of this, if you went back to Exodus, say Exodus 20 through 27, really, Exodus particularly probably 20 through 25, you'd read about the construction of these furnishings. So that gives us more detail as to how they're made that we're not really going to look at tonight. But if you went back to the Old Testament and you studied the tabernacle and the furnishings with the tabernacle, you'd learn more about how they were made. One of the things you learn about the candlestick is that it's got seven branches. It's got one taller main branch at the center and then three on either side. Now, if you want to look at the candlestick as being a representation of the Word of God, I think that's significant because oftentimes the, the, the Bible as a whole could be divided into seven sections. Now, I'm not talking about time periods like we've looked at in the past, but seven, uh, seven different sections. For even, even Jesus himself would talk about the law and the prophets. And so sometimes people look at the Old Testament and say you could divide that basically into the law and the Psalms and the prophets. And if you look at the Pentateuch, uh, as sometimes when people talk about the law, they're actually referring to all the first five books of the Old Testament, not just the law of Moses, but actually the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis uh, and after that. If you look at that, then you could divide the Old Testament, if you wanted to, into the law and the Psalms and the prophets. And then the, 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 the uh, branch in the middle, you could simply say, was the gospel. But then after the gospel, you're going um, to have the book of Acts. It gives us the history of the church, if that would be the fourth section, if you want to divide the scriptures that way. Then you have the letters, uh, mostly letters to different churches, but not always to different churches. You have like Paul writing to Titus or Timothy. And then it's kind of separate by itself. You have the book of Revelation, which is a prophecy largely of the persecution the church is going to be under at the end of the first century. A small portion of Revelation really deals with prophecy that has not yet come. So if you look at it that way, you could really divide, and that's a pretty common division uh, of dividing the Bible. You could look at it as dividing it into seven sections like that, and that would give, I think, further credence to the idea that the candlestick is the Word of God. Now, the candlestick, though, is inside the tabernacle, inside this first section, uh, and uh, the holy place. It's also interesting when you study the, ca uh, the candlestick, 
that it was to be maintained daily. It, it would never go out. They would keep it lit around the clock, I guess. Don't know that there was a clock in there, was there? But it would be kept lit continually. It would never go out. And it would be maintained daily as far as uh, making sure there's oil in the lamp, you know, trimming the wick, that type of thing. Does, doesn't that also say something to us about the Word of God? I mean, how often should people open their Bibles and read? Um, daily, do we not read in the Bible a number of times how you know search the scriptures daily Acts seventeen eleven, and when we do that, it'll be a light for us and a guide for our life. Now, in, in addition to the candlestick, there's a table, and on this table is the showbread, which is well, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. That is the first section of the tabernacle is called the sanctuary. Showbread, some have said, represents God's presence with His people. Uh, it's, it has two rows, and so because of that, you know, there are two rows of six each, and because of that, some have said, well, it represents God's presence, and represents God's presence with his people through all times, you know, and the old and the new, and uh, that might be, I wouldn't really disagree with that necessarily, not, certainly not, I wouldn't make an issue out of it, but I do think uh, if you're going to look at this showbread and look at the idea that these are types or shadows, figures of the real thing that's to come later, and you look at these items in the, in the tabernacle, which the tabernacle itself was a type of the church. Remember, Peter writes today that we are lively stones that make up the temple. I would actually look at this showbread here probably as, uh, as a shadow of the Lord's Supper, the bread. And that is a big part, obviously, of the church today and, and a big part of our worship. And I, I would really look at it more along those lines. But notice after the second veil, verse 3. Now, the second veil, well, the first veil was what you went through to enter the tabernacle, the, the holy place, the first section in the tabernacle. And you have these furnishings in there, and then, then you would enter the holiest of all or the most holy place by going through the second veil but nobody would do that except the high priest alone I mean nobody would do that in the high priest alone except the high priest alone I think Corey mentioned recently when we we're looking at this and I read in several places that well as well it was a custom of them to tie a rope onto the priest uh, usually leg ankle or something like that so if by chance something happened to him while he was there uh, you couldn't go in there and get him but that's how they would get him out even because it was that sacred and nobody was able to enter into it except the high priest. Now that's significant because this second section of the tabernacle, the holiest of all, was a representation of heaven itself. Um, and after the second veil then, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. So here's the most holy place, typical of heaven, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold where there was a golden pot that had manna. Now this is, this is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant and the things that were in the Ark of the Covenant, the manna and the golden, uh, well, the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and then the tables of the covenant or the tables that had uh, the old law. Well, uh, when you look at this, you're going to find out the, the rod that budded. That's a reference back to, remember when... That was basically the way it was not really, not really decided, I don't guess, but it was the way it was revealed 
as to where the where the priest would come from, and, it, and that's why it comes from Aaron's rod. And the descendants of Aaron, particularly descendants of Levi, would serve as priest, and that's the significance of the rod that budded and the manna. And then the tables are covenant. Now over it, verse five, were the cherubims of glory. Cherubims would be. You've probably seen some drawings of what this may have looked like. The cherubims would be uh, as class of angels, basically. The Bible talks about angels, but the Bible also talks about even even at least one of our songs talk about cherubim and seraphim. It's basically it's thought that's different classes of angels that they were not all necessarily alike. But over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat. Now of which we cannot now speak particularly. And the mercy seat is basically the covering to the Ark of the Covenant. So this was all in the holy place. Now, I'm hesitant to bring this up, but I will bring it up anyway. And like I said, you can, you can study some things for yourself. When you study the veil, I'm talking about the veil now, the second veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And remember, that would be the veil that separated symbolically the church from heaven itself, then you start to say, what was the significance of this veil? I mean, you're going to get a lot of different ideas. Some are going to say, well, this veil is, is uh, symbolic of Christ's flesh. And we know that when Christ died on the cross, uh, this veil was torn. And of course, it was torn from top to bottom, an indication that God did this, not man. And some will say this veil was symbolic of Christ's flesh. Some will say the veil was symbolic of death, simply symbolic of death, because we enter through this veil to enter heaven. We have to pass through death. And so some would say it's symbolic of that. And then you'll get several different ideals as to what it may have been. I think sometimes people want to read too much into it. I think sometimes... Um, and this is where I get to go say, go back and just think, think for yourself. You don't have to believe something just because some big name preachers taught it. You know, think for yourself. What do we want to th look at the veil? To me, I look at the veil simply as a barrier between the holy place and the most holy place. That's it. It was a veil that separated the two. And without trying to read too much symbolism into it, and, and then you'll end up reading something into it that's not there, the veil, the second veil, was a separation between the church and heaven. Now, here's where some people are going to disagree with me. And I'm going to encourage you again to study this through and read it for yourself. If that's a separation between the church and the heaven, what do you think was the significance of the veil being torn when Christ died? And I'll let you think, ponder on that for a while. Um, but he's telling us then this was the golden pot that had the man and Aaron's rod that bought, butted, butted, and the tables of the covenant. Verse 5, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were, verse, were first ordained, or when these things were thus ordained, verse 6, remember he tells us in chapter 9, verse 1, that they had ordinances. So he tells us now in 6, these were the ordinances, 2 through 5. In verse 6, he says, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. The priest did, and not the high priest, but the priest did. 
And only priests could go in the first portion of the tabernacle, the holy place. Only priests could enter that. Well, that's significant though, isn't it? If this holy place represents the church, and it does, I mean, I think that's obvious. Look at the times, a number, a number of times in the New Testament we read about the church described as the tabernacle or the temple with living stones. It's so very obvious to me this first portion of the tabernacle represents the church. Uh, who is in the church today? Well, somebody said, well, Christians are in the church today. That's true. Uh, are there any Christians outside the church today? Well, that's false. There are no Christians today who are not in the Lord's church. So that's, we know that about the tabernacle. But what's another name for Christians? Or at least let's say, what are Christians? Are we priests? Are we not? Read First and Second Peter. will bear that out as well. We're priests. So now in this tabernacle, in the first section of the tabernacle, the holy place, today you have the priests going in there and carrying about the service or work of the Lord. Uh, so uh, I'm telling you, if you believe what many people today believe, you've got to go back and rearrange the tabernacle. Nobody went in this first section except the priest. And the priest went in there. And if this is a shadow of that which was to come which the Bible says it is uh, who's in the church today? The priest and there's nobody in the church who's not a priest and there are no priests outside the church. Does that make sense now? See salvation's in the one church. So now when these things were thus ordained, verse 6, the priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the serving of God but, verse 7, who went into the second place? Who went into the holiest of all, the, the holy of holies? But into the second area now went the high priest alone, nobody but him. And he only went once a year. And he only did that on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. He would go in there to perform his service one day out of the year, and that was all on a Day of Atonement. Now what about when they took the tabernacle down and transported it to different places? Even then, all the furnishings of the tabernacle would be covered. So no one would actually see them. I mean, this was, this was that important. Think about this. This was that important to God. And if this is typical of the church, with the church being the anti-type, don't ever, ever let anybody tell you the church today is not important. I mean, why would Christ shed his blood for something that was immaterial and irrelevant? Or not important. It's so very important. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, when he offered, which he offered his blood now for himself and for the errors or sins of the people. It's a big difference now between the high priest under the old law and Christ as our high priest. Christ offered a sacrifice for our sins, that being his own self. But he didn't have to offer sacrifice for his sins. He didn't have any sins. Now, uh, I, I, you know, like I know, I try not to get on my little tangents, but it's hard sometimes. I just mentioned that uh, uh, that the, the high priest from verse seven, he only went into the most holy place one day out of the year, Leviticus sixteen, and that was on the Day of Atonement. To me, that atonement is a important word. Because you read about atonement, you find the word atonement all throughout the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament you read about atonement. Where do you read the word atonement in the New Testament? 
You won't find it in there hardly at all. I think you find the word atonement in, I think, Romans 5, 11. You may have to check me on that. It's in Romans 5. It could be Romans, I think it's Romans 5, 11. It may be 12. It may be somewhere else in Romans 5. But it's in Romans 5. You find, the, you find the word atonement in Romans 5, the only time you find it in the New Testament, and then you only find it by the, in the King James Version. Other translations say instead of receiving the atonement, we have received something like usually they'll say reconciliation, which is a good translation. I say all this because the word atonement in its strictest sense, if you do some word studies and find out the word atonement uh, actually has the idea of covering it's a covering, and that's what it means. Some people want to say little things like atonement. That means we are now at one with Christ. Well, that sounds good, but that's not. The word actually means it's a covering, and that was significant under the old law. Their sins were covered, but your sins and mine aren't covered anymore. It's not like I'm trying to cover something up. It's not like I've got a stain on my soul that I'm trying to cover it up. And so I get to Acts 22:16. What did Ananias tell Paul? Arise and be baptized and cover up your sins, Paul. See, the sins aren't simply covered anymore. He says, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. This sin is gone. Now, and I think that's I think that's the reason why you don't read about atonement in the New Testament. If there's something else to it that I'm overlooking, let me know. But I know you find the word atonement all throughout the Old Testament. But you don't find it in the New Testament. There's a huge difference. There's a huge difference. If, our, if, if Christ, think about it, if Christ's blood provided atonement for us, that's what bulls and goats offered, I mean provided. They provided atonement, didn't they? So why would Christ shed his blood to provide something that Old Testament sacrifices already provided? See? Uh, again, I know I'm getting on a tangent about this, but I don't typically like to speak of the atoning blood of Christ. And when people say it, I know what they mean, so I'm not going to argue with them. But Christ's blood does way, way more for us than just atone for our sins. That's what the Old Testament animals did that. He truly takes our sins away. He truly washes them away. See, he truly gives us forgiveness that these Old Testament sacrifices didn't. I'm getting ahead of myself now, but we're in chapter 9. Look at verse 15. And for this cause, or for this reason, he is the mediator of the New Testament. But keep reading verse 15. That by means of death, that is by means of his death on the cross, for the redemption of transgressions, that basically for redemption of sins, that were under the First Testament. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. In other words, Christ died for everybody who lived under the old law as well as the new. See? People think, well, God just changed his mind, decided he's going to have a new law instead, you know, and so Christ died. The, part is, the point is Christ's death was always in the mind of God. Ephesians 3.10 says it's the eternal purpose of God. Christ's blood did what these Old Testament sacrifices could not. If they could do it, what's the point in Christ dying? See? And Christ's blood does something far more than any Old Testament sacrifice ever did. It, he really doesn't provide atonement for our sins. In the strictest sense of the word, he provides true forgiveness. Now, were those people who lived under the old law, were they forgiven? 
Well, I would say yes, the Bible talks about them being forgiven, but they were forgiven only in the prospect of the coming of Christ. See, only because it was a, a foregone that Christ would die one day, and that's, that's still what provided their forgiveness was, was Christ's blood. Now, verse 8, the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. You decide how much you want to read into verse 8. The Holy Ghost signifying. How did he signify this? Through the, through the Old Testament tabernacle, through the furniture, through the high priest going into the holy of all, holiest of all. And it tells us in verse 8, the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. When was it not yet made manifest? Well, while the tabernacle was still standing. Has it, made, has it been made manifest now? Think that through for yourself. I'm going to leave that up to y'all to study that. Verse 9, which was a figure. All right, People can get hung up on the word figure. I mean, I don't know how many discussions I've had with people who, when they go to First, first Peter 3.21, particularly the King James says, the like figure um, or as baptism doth also now save us. I really like the way the New King James translates this, 1 Peter 3.21, because it comes out and says there is an antitype. And that's just a transliteration of the Greek word, meaning the, the flood of Noah's day was a type and baptism of the antitype. It makes it very plain. But the King James says the like figure, and so people will say, well, that baptism is just figurative. There's nothing to it. It's just figurative. Listen, it would be meaningless for it to be figurative unless there was some real substance to it. Otherwise, what's it a figure of? See? And so, uh, if you want to say something's figurative, and yes, it, it is figurative, but that doesn't mean there's no reality to it or there's no meaning or substance to it. So these old things he's mentioned here under the old law now, the Old Testament tabernacle and the furnishing, he said, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. Perfect now. Remember perfect in the New Testament almost all the time. I don't know of any exceptions. Look at perfect as reaching the desired or intended goal. What is our desired goal? What's our intended goal? What's the result we want to see? To be sinless before God. That's what we want. If you don't want anything else in life, you ought to want to be sinless before God. All right, he's telling us in verse 9, these Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do that. They couldn't make you sinless before God because they couldn't provide this forgiveness in reality. But notice in verse 9, he also says, as pertaining to the conscience. That's important. Look at 1 Peter 3.21. I'm, I'm telling you, look, it, it study types and antitypes in the Bible. What a great study it is. But look at 1 Peter 3 and verse 21 now. And we're reading about baptism, and he tells us in 1 Peter 3.21, he says, The like figure unto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in other translations for 1 Peter 3.21 will say something like it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. So in other words, people say, All, all you've got to do to be saved is call on the name of the Lord. Just call on the name of the Lord. I would agree with that, but where I disagree is they don't understand what it means to call on the name of the Lord. And 1 Peter 3.21 says, baptism is an appeal to God. It's at baptism I am calling out to God. 
and I'm calling out and wanting my sins to be forgiven. And through baptism, I have a clear conscience because I'm sinless now. And Hebrews 9 says, these Old Testament sacrifices, they couldn't give me a clear conscience, verse 9. Christ's blood does that. See, Christ's blood does that. Um, uh, but we're, we're calling out to God when we're, when we're being baptized. That's why Acts 22, 16, Rise and be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. People will say, no, he wasn't saved when he was baptized. He was saved when he was calling on the name of the Lord. And so they say that's a prayer. No, the answer is you are calling on the name of the Lord when you're being baptized. Uh, I don't know a lot about English. I would never try to teach an English class. I ain't got no good grammar. But um, I do know this. I know this. I know something about a participle phrase. And in Acts 22, 16, when he says calling on the name of the Lord, he's, remember he doesn't tell him to call on the name of the Lord in Acts twenty two sixteen. I know what you've often heard, but read it for yourself. He tells him to arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. Now he doesn't tell him to call on the name of the Lord. He says calling on the name of the Lord. That's a participle phrase. And the, the point is, it's describing what Paul is doing when he is being baptized. When he is being baptized, he's calling on the name of the Lord. That's how you do it. So if somebody wants to go to Acts 22, 16, say, no, no, he's just told to call on the name of the Lord. Read it again and have them read it. He, was no, he wasn't even told to call on the name of the Lord. He just says when you're baptized, that's what you're in fact doing. Um, we're not anywhere near. I was supposed to finish chapter 9 tonight. What happened? I know what happened, Marilyn. I got on my rant. Y'all mind if I teach till midnight? and Y'all go to sleep and... Fall out the windows and all that. You're on maternity leave. Well, you didn't. You didn't have a baby. Why are they giving you maternity leave? Huh? Becca did all the hard work. Isn't that right? You were. You were just there watching, trying not to pass out. Probably. We're. I guess we're going to start at verse ten next week.